why do people love their dogs so much? In this episode, you'll hear from Andy Root, Associate Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary. He sat down with us to talk about his latest book, The Grace of Dogs. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. So tell me, why are you writing about dogs? Yeah, it seems a little weird, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, given that you write about youth ministry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I've probably cut my teeth writing about ministry in general and youth ministry and then uh, theology. But here's a book that comes along about dogs. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess the long story to it, I always feel funny talking about it because it just it does seem odd. Uh, but it's been a project that I've, I've really loved and I think is, uh, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. So it all goes back to... Um, I used to be part of this board for this journal at the school that I teach at, and we would always, every spring, we would get together and uh, try to get the four topics for the issues for the next year. And my confession here is that I hated those meetings. I mean, there was free food, so that was great, but they were so tedious. So after like year one or two, I decided that I would just say the craziest stuff that I could think of you know like you know so they'd be like should we have it on the book of job an issue on job an issue on matthew how about an issue on redemption or sanctification and i would always be like how about an issue on aliens and you know i would just all these crazy ideas so you were the youth minister in the room i guess i was a youth minister in the room yeah i was just a board person i think ultimately in the room and so they and then we would vote on them so and i would always rally um like colleagues to vote for my crazy idea so it won to the dismay of the uh editorial guy um a few times but then those always sold the best so then he thought that i was like an idiot savant who like uh knew how to sell things so did you do an issue on aliens no i can't remember we did like an issue on the car and things like that like just these kind of obscure topics but one of the things that I nominated was dogs it's like let's do one on dogs and uh I kind of was doing it just to get a rise out of people, but I also thought, you know, there's something to this. I mean, people really do deeply, deeply love their dogs, and their dogs are incredibly important to them. It did not win, so they it, it didn't get voted in, but that started this seed of thinking about, man, there's something to this, and I've always been a dog lover, and um, my dog growing up was really important to me, and then, um, actually, in Princeton here, um, when I started, when I was a, a first-year doctoral student, we got a puppy. Okay. And now uh, we were, if you go down Route 1, there's the uh, Halo Farm. Do they still have, like, the Halo Farm? Like, yes, they thing? do. So we would get our ice cream. Um, well, we'd get our milk and ice cream along with it at Halo Farm. And there was this, like, this little shop called Pet World or something like that. That's not its real name. But it, it was, like, a knockoff of PetSmart. And unlike PetSmart, there were actually animals you could buy in there. Like, there were cats and, and dogs. So one night we were coming back from Halo Farm car still filled with ice cream and milk and we decided we were gonna stop and look at the puppies i don't you know why came home with a puppy and we came home with a black lap i came home with chickens that way did you yeah yeah, yeah. huge yeah. mistake yeah yeah so that was like the biggest impulse buy that that i've ever had so this dog black lab um bought here in new jersey and what was his name his name was kirby so a lot of other people back at the old crw they would have the theology nerds would name their dogs after theologians, you know, so there was around our area, there was a couple of Schleiermachers and Calvins of all shapes and sizes. And, uh, but we, I decided to name my dog Kirby after Kirby Puckett, the baseball player grew up in Minnesota. Kirby was a big deal. So I had Kirby and Kirby was, uh, this was before we had kids. Kirby was important to us. Kirby was our, you know, our first kind of entree in many ways of being a family of, of having someone other than 
than Carr and I that we really cared about. But then a few years later, uh, Owen came along, and then uh, my daughter Maisie came along, and Kirby uh, became actually more attached to them than even to us. And then just a few years ago now, and this is really where the book started, not only did I have this kind of idea um, that there was something important there, but then we had to put Kirby down. And that was a very difficult uh, experience. And actually, it, w- it was shocking to me. I had no, I mean, I love this dog, and this dog was important to me. This dog, in many ways, ordered my life, like taking the dog out, playing with the dog was such a significant thing, feeding the dog. But, um, and I knew, so when I, I knew when this dog would go that it would be really painful. But when this dog died, I was just shocked at, actually at the at the anger that was inside of me, at the anger of loss, like that that throbbing grief where you the only response is to be to be mad. But the real impetus of the book that the, in this book becomes kind of a memoirish journey, is that when we put him down, um, as the story goes, that. Uh, he just Kirby just wasn't moving, um, and he was lethargic. Had he been sick for a while? Well, the thing with Kirby is that he would have these bad days as he got into his double digits, as he got into 10 and 11. He'd have these bad days, but he'd always rebound. And so he was having a few bad days, and uh, Carr and I got into a kind of a debate if, if there was something wrong. And I could just kind of feel it, like, this isn't good. She said, I'll take him to the vet. He'll be fine. So she took him to the vet, and um, sure enough, the vet said, I'm really sorry to tell you, but there's a huge mass in his stomach. He shouldn't be moved, and this is really the end. So how did you process that with your kids at the time? Yeah, so we went and we got the kids. Car went alone because she just thought, like, this was, oh, give them this antibiotic and everything will be fine. So she went and got the kids and picked me up, and we drove back. And she had left Kirby, couldn't even move Kirby, so he was left at the at vet's office. And we told the kids right away, um, and the sobbing just began. And we got there, and we went into the to the vet's uh, the, the the room that Kirby was in at the, at the vet's office, and he was there laying lethargically on uh, the linoleum floor, and my kids just sobbed. I think Owen was eight at the time, and Maisie was six, and just sobbed, 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 threw themselves on this dog. And it was really quite beautiful and encompassed his life that as soon as they, he, they came through the door, I mean, this dog could barely move, but as soon as they, he saw the two kids and they ran towards him, his, little, his tail started to wag again. And they just threw themselves on him and cried and cried and cried and cried. Because they knew they were losing him. Yeah, we, they knew that this was it, that we were going we to put him down. Well, what happened was that uh, finally the, the, the vet came in and uh, his back leg was already shaved to give him the injection. And he came in, and Owen found this incredible bravery and said, you know, the last thing Kirby's going to see is my face. So he put his nose next to the dog's nose on the floor, and they injected um, the poison into him. And you could see just the life leave this dog. And as it did, and as Owen watched this, the sobbing just started. And it it was almost like I say in the book, it was like he was uh, the mother from a a war-torn country who just lost her her son in a drone attack or something. I mean, he's just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing to the point that the dog's snout is just sopping wet with my kid's tears. I can't take it anymore. Like, this is it. Um, The grief now, I mean, that anger grief is inside of me. And for some reason, all I could think to myself is I need to put my feet in the grass. Like, I just need to get outside. So I grabbed Maisie and we went outside. Um, and Kara, my wife, said that uh, about three or four minutes after we left, that Owen said, he kind of collected himself, he stood up and he said, Mom, I'll be right back. And he went outside uh, into the um, waiting room and he got uh, a couple dog treats and a Dixie cup full of water. And he came back into the room and he put the two 
treats on the dog's back and took the Dixie cup of water, stuck his finger in the water and made the sign of the cross on the dog's head and then essentially prayed for the dog and lifted his hands to heaven, almost like, you know, like a middle evil priest at the table or something and kind of folded his hands and lifted them to heaven. And Kara was just like the air sucked out of the room, trying not to move as this, what she called a really holy moment was happening. So the whole book is really, why did that feel right? Like, why did, did that, that just flow from him? Or do you think that he, well, I mean, you know, the skepticism is that there's something probably socialized into him. You know, his mom's a pastor and he's watched that, but there was, I mean, the, the, really what I think is that he recognized that he was losing something that was quite sacred to him, something that um, was deep within his humanity and his personhood. And, and when you lose something that you've really entered into kind of a two-way street of, of love and relationship, that you have to grieve it, you have to give it back. There, there's, there has to be a liturgy for that. And, and so um, that's what he did. I'm not sure he really exactly knew what he was doing, but... Um, he enacted that practice and so the book is really then the journey of why did that feel like it was the right thing to do and could it be possible that we do have um, spiritual connections to to our dogs is this is this kind of relationship we have could we could we call it um, a spiritual um, connection so you've named the book the grace of dogs yeah so why do you call it grace i mean that's a big yeah it is theologically a big... laden term it is um so I call it grace, not because I think that dogs somehow can, you know, enter into justification by faith alone or um, have any sense of, of kind of doctrinally or creedally what any of this means. But I do think, and I, I think the new kind of science on dogs that's that's been pretty prevalent for the last decade, maybe five, five six years, which was really helpful to me, um, really talks about the unique relationality that dogs have with people that it has no other correlation with any other animal really I mean sometimes you'll find animals that will have certain connections with people but dogs do that just regularly and it's just innate the, their ability to um, be near us to participate in healing us to um, when well, I think specifically of seeing eye dogs yeah where, yeah yeah I mean people are literally dependent on dogs for everyday life yeah yeah i mean and that's an even i mean that's so important functionally like what how could you get an animal kind of functionally to help you um maneuver around a room there has to be some kind of connection and communication connection but even as it's gone deeper and i draw on this a little bit in the book i mean um there's now a program where if someone has to testify um, before some in, a, in an abuse case so they have to actually testify and we'll see their abuser there's a whole program that brings dogs into the courtroom and the dog will sit at the feet of the person who has to retell this incredibly traumatizing experience so the dog in some way like mediates peace comfort you're okay it's okay that you're loved um, kind of unconditionally and I was telling someone that story just a few days ago and I talked about in a seminary classroom how they have a student who has um, some pretty severe um, uh, uh, kind of trauma issues and the dog is is a help, helper dog and the dog can sense when his anxiety gets up and when the anxiety gets up the dog will put his nose on his knee and if the and if the anxiety gets too high and this dog I mean, it's almost like imaginable kind of, uh, you know, like sci-fi-ish uh, J.K. Rowling thing or something, that there's this beast in the world that can sense your emotional reality and will respond to you. And she'll say that if, if his anxiety gets too high, the dog will crawl up and put its face next to his face and lick his face. And so 
it's just it's it's a so I think it is grace at that level. I mean, what I want to say, kind of doctrinally, is is the dog have any sense of what the history of Christianity is meant by grace? Um, obviously not. But there's ways that it echoes this deep kind of interconnection, this this way of um, appreciation for your distinctiveness, but also your bound interconnection. And there's ways that dogs just indwell the human spirit. That's quite unique i think and so yeah so certainly there are people who would wonder about do dogs go to heaven yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> so have you entertained a lot of those questions yeah the well? publisher yeah. really really wanted me to to deal with that and i do i mean i think i probably deal with it like a theologian would you know like instead of so being what do you like, mean by that well instead of being like yes they go to heaven and this is why i think i probably give a kind of philosophical edifice that says yes they do but kind of uh maybe it makes conditional statements about that or something. But where, I mean, where I would go to, to, to kind of simplify that is um, if if the experience of heaven or um, eternity has something to do with deep kind of forms of relationality, um, you know, that God has the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that there's a, a relational interconnection between the, the, the divine and human nature of Jesus or whatever. So in, in, at least in the Christian tradition, there's this sense where relationality is a, a fairly kind of core thing and one of the reasons we yearn for at a deep impulse that we'll see our grandmother or our father again in heaven is there is this sense I mean I think we live with this very kind of individualized kind of perspective this kind of buffered perspective of who we are but in some ways we are the constitution of all the relationships that make us you know there's that can be a problematic statement and I think it can be kind of used sometimes um well, it, we just have to be careful with saying that. But at another level, it's really true that we're all these constitutions of all these relationships that make us, and um, and so in that in that sense, like the way interconnections of friendships and others imp- imprint on my my spirit, my being, is really in, in, in disconnected from me. So if my consciousness somehow can continue into another world, then my consciousness is in many ways the constitution of all these other relationships that have helped me know who I am and have loved me and have entered into these kind of experiences. And if that's true, then a lot of us would testify that our dogs and kind of are, are, are part of the constitution of the relational dynamic, the, the relational fabric, the multiple threads that make up our being. And if that's true, then they would live on in, in, in heaven. You know, I don't know if it's like, I don't know, a Simpsons episode or, you know, some kind of cartoon where we walk through some pearly gates and there's clouds and all of all the dogs of our lives run up to us. I'm not sure if it's that, but there if 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 spirituality has a deep kind of relational constitution, I guess the point of my book is really there is a really strong way that connects with how we thought of spirit and spirituality through relationality that dogs participate in. Do dogs in some way serve to set up, um, are you proposing at all that we think differently about our interconnectedness with all of creation? Or do you not go too far beyond dogs? Yeah, I don't go too far beyond dogs. I think that the ramifications, the implications are probably there. So I would say yes, and then I would say no. I would say yes, that I hope that this opens us up to think differently about our interactions with other animals, and it has for me, it, it does oppose things like uh, legacies from Descartes who thought, like, listen, like, all animals are are machines, um, and there's no difference. I mean, Descartes said this. There's no difference between the squeaking brakes of a chair of a of a, a carriage and a dog's cry. Like, those are just those are just 
objective machines. So I think it, it pushes beyond that. But I also, where I say no, is that I am really trying, and I, I think I believe this, that I think that dogs are quite unique creatures. That they're, they're, that they're f- maybe, fundamentally, probably is too strong, but there's something really unique about a dog. And the new science of dogs shows that. And the thing that it ultimately shows that's so unique about dogs is that they're innately, from birth, wired to respond to our faces. Um, and that, whether it's an evolutionary trick, um, which I think is reductionistic, or it is kind of how we are wired as spiritual beings, um, the encounter of the face um, is deeply meaningful to us. And six-week-old puppies are uniquely wired to respond to, to look at, um, to take cues from human faces. In the same way that human babies. They actually say dogs function as um, as infants, same kind of cognitive structure, the same kind of draw to the face. They obviously don't develop beyond a lot of those points, but that's one of the reasons... I mean, if there's an, there's kind of another level here, and this is where maybe the book seems far afield for my work, but I think it's kind of central to it. Is I really, you know, through youth ministry and and th- thinking about young people and thinking about children and the spiritual dynamics of that, um, there is really significant ways that children are connected to their dogs, um, and there's I think certain evolutionary ways that that these um, that dogs have have really helped helped uh, us raise children in a certain way. Um, but also trying to point out these dynamics of this kind of face-to-face interaction, the spirituality of the child. It's 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 not just um, there, there's some a, a spiritual dynamic when an infant looks at their caregiver and that in that bond that's that's bound through the mimicking of the face of of the looking in each other's eyes of all those moves, and you don't see that anywhere else. And one of the things I draw out scientifically is great apes, chimpanzees, um, and other and other apes do not. They can be trained to look at our, to read our gestures, and particularly to look at our faces. But you're not really supposed to look in the eyes of another wild animal that could, you know, crush your neck. You're supposed to keep your head down because face-to-face interaction, eye-to-eye contact, for most other animals means only aggression. And so, but dogs completely different. They can process affection. They can process affection. They they actually in many ways eat up um, the expressions of our face uh, like an infant would. They get a ton of communication from from that, um, as well as our patterns. I mean, it's amazing how a dog reads your patterns. A dog often knows what time it is sometimes before you do because a dog can live into these patterns. So between the face-to-face interaction and the ritualization that the dog participates in, I mean, these are, I mean to me, those are deep wells of spirituality. Um, when we talk about... Ritual, we're talking about liturgy in some yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you would say a, a lot, especially in our kind of secular age, uh, for a lot of people, the dog park, the walk with their dog, the um, those become really ritualized forms um, that organize their lives where maybe other forms of, of classic religion, religion doesn't. So I would never want to say that it's replacing that, but... Um, yeah, I just think there... I'm, yeah, I, you know, I, I said this already, but I just think there's something... Like if you were to kind of objectively pull dogs out, I think that you, you would have to sci-fi create a creature that that could do this. We'd be missing something. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, it's just I think their regularity has led us to miss them, and that's been part of the story scientifically as well. Is that it took only until the last couple decades for people to study dogs because they just seemed so normal. Like why would you study the beast that's sleeping on your couch and drinks out of your toilet? But once you start to kind of tease that out. It's amazing. I mean, it, it's really quite amazing. 
All right, so you are a self-proclaimed television junkie. Yeah. So what is your favorite television show or movie um, that has dogs in it and why? Oh, man. I got to think about that one. Um, I, sh- I I feel really bad. I should be able to come up with that. I didn't that send you second. this one beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see you in your – you sent me – you were very kind to send me questions, and That's I right. didn't really look at it. You literally wrote a book on it, so I yeah, yeah. be fine without it. Uh, yeah, I, sh- I should be okay with it. Um dogs and tv i don't know like i have flashbacks to um uh tiger on the brady bunch okay remember the episode where um it's a very tragic episode when cindy thought she was you're too young for this when cindy thought i didn't watch tv growing up so i'm too young for most of it oh man (laughs) i don't know if i could trust you go ahead yeah cindy Cindy from the brady bunch cindy from the brady bunch was alert allergic and they thought that it was tiger and they thought they're gonna have to get rid of tiger and it was incredibly horrific and the other children had turned on Cindy because they were going to send Tiger away and Tiger was so important and then in classic 1970s sitcom way they discovered at the last minute it wasn't Tiger at all it was just his shampoo and all they had to do was change his shampoo so that one races to mind I mean like the wolves in Games of Game of Thrones are pretty sweet you know what I mean and those yeah. I mean those aren't dogs but those are kind of these these symbols of connection of kind of loyalty protection of protection um that seems to kind of reverberate um in some of this um when i was a kid we every elementary kid at least in minnesota would read where the red fern grows tearjerker huge tearjerker and then you'd watch the movie mm-hmm. and you know you're in fifth grade and try not to cry in front of your friends but you're i just cried in front of de- all the friends devastated mm-hmm. absolutely devastated yeah yeah all right so one last question what um what surprised you when you were writing the book or what kind of new thing did you discover or did it just help you process the things you had experienced? Yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I think probably the, the book was a pleasure to read. I mean, I, I should say this, say two things about that. It was a pleasure to research because there was, I was learning all along the way. I mean, it, it was at that level. It was kind of like to get a little nerdy. It was kind of like what Michael Polanyi says about kind of, scientific discovery and I'm not trying to you know give it that that high of a a value but where you just kind of sense there's something and then you go on this journey and then you start seeing interconnections I mean so that was really quite a pleasure and and to see how those those things kind of play out and maybe I can give you another example that in a second but the other thing that I discovered is I mean this is it was all so that was a pleasure writing the book at that level at the other level it was an incredible pain in the ass um, writing this book because I knew if I was going to write a book about dogs that I wanted to try to write it for a broad as broad audience as I could so you know like a trade book I got a couple really good breaks that we'll put in a New York publishing house and um, you know it's probably the only book I'll ever write Um, I think the publisher hopes for another one but uh, you know that really at least idea that I have in my head like that I can think like this is a book that really a large audience, like the people in my neighborhood would want to read. Like they don't really want to read a book about the incarnation, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, but that meant um, I had to rewrite. I, I spent more time trying to write this book and it's a relatively small book, more time um, on this than my dissertation. I would actually say it was much harder than a, a PhD dissertation to try to write a book um, for an audience. And I, That's really interesting because you think that something that has so much of your personal story in it yeah. and your children's story would kind of flow yeah differently and maybe the next maybe if i try to write another broad audience book god willing the next one will this one did not and um i i don't know how to write something that doesn't have a lot of i like ideas like that's what i 
like to do. So trying to find ways of communicating ideas. And I think one of the things as theologians and just academics in general we're trained to do is take the reader on an exploration where at the end, essentially, you have pinned them and they admit that your argument is the right argument. So every page you want the reader to say, oh, he's right. Oh, she's on to something. Oh, yes, she's right. She's right. She's convinced me. Mm-hmm. Where when you write a large market popular book, and it took me three writes of this book to realize this, that's not what you want the reader to do. You want the reader when they read this book to go, oh, that's cool. Oh, I never saw that before. Oh, that makes me feel something. Um, and that's a comp- – I mean, I, I wasn't trained to write that way. I was trained – to write an argument, mm-hmm. which is why in the next podcast when we talk about the next book, um, kind of back and forth with my agent on writing these these versions of this, I just decided I'm going to write an argument book. I'm just going to write an academic book. Um, and so uh, that hopefully will we'll make it into the world of, of pastors and youth pastors mm-hmm. and things like that. But So those were the two. So th- th- that was surprising. The process itself was surprising. The other kind of intellectual thing that was surprising or d- idea that was surprising um, was – I didn't realize how how the potential um, the potential of dogs that allow us to be human at all. And if you just look at it from a scientific evolutionary perspective, there are theories that I buy into within the book that what allows human beings to actually, particularly, take over Europe or um, survive Neander- the Neanderthal crisis with Neanderthals, or just allows our even our minds to evolve to a point where we become conscious thinkers or thinkers about thinking was that we had dogs that we domesticated dogs or dogs domesticated themselves around us and we entered into a relationship with dogs um, that we needed dogs to be able to sleep to actually enter into REM sleep if you were afraid of a Neanderthal attack or a, a beast attack you know like if you have a flight at five in the morning like I did today you find yourself waking up every two hours wondering if you've missed your alarm and so you could imagine that um it would be pretty hard to enter into REM sleep, into deep forms of sleep, unless you had sentinels that guarded your your camp. And if we can then start sleeping those long hours, it'll allow your brain to evolve. But also we know from every hunting and gathering form of religion that sleep in the sleep world and the dream world becomes an incredible liminal space of spirituality. So the dog stands guard to allow that, as well as the dog stands guard during the day to allow you to daydream and actually think about thinking. And, of course, other functional things like helping you hunt to get enough meat to actually get the protein to allow the brain to evolve. So that stuff was surprising. Um, and to try to take some of that more reductionistic stuff and point to the spiritual dynamics of that, um, I think, was, was kind of exciting. So maybe we so. have to thank dogs for more than we realize. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, Andy. Thank you. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. I'm Garrett Mostowski, and I'm in charge of production. And I'm Christy Holly, and I'm the creative designer. Like what you're hearing? Let us know by rating us on iTunes. The Distillery Podcast is part of The Thread, a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more episodes and other content at thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>